good morning. My name is Casey Cease. I am one of the teaching elders here at Redeemer Church. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. And to all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day. This is not a Father's Day sermon, um, but there's application throughout all scripture to being a father. A friend of mine was joking, Dave was joking with me yesterday saying, hey, I'm not going to church tomorrow because it's, I don't want to get the right-left hook, uh, you know, because typically churches are famous for bringing that in on Father's Day and telling you how bad you are as a dad. Um, and how good the Father in Heaven is. Um, and I said, well, that's really just bad standard planning. Um, in general, for churches, um, as a marketer myself, I don't think that's the best day to do that. The best day to trap dads and to teach them how bad they are is actually Mother's Day because the women are more likely to drag their whole family to church. And the guys who would actually need to hear a Father's Day talk on being a better dad are probably skipping church on Father's Day to do something they want to do and aren't really the type that are going to follow up to listen to a podcast for Father's Day. So beware next Mother's Day if I'm on the docket. Look out, dads. But for those of you fathers here, may God bless you. May God use you. May God inspire you and help you. May the Lord heal you. May the Lord apply his mercy and grace on you and through you and in you. We are not perfect beings by any, mean, by any means, but if we might be a reflection, whether dimly or brightly, of our Father in heaven, on your worst day, you're teaching your kids opposites of what the God, our Father in heaven are. And on your best day, you're showing a limping standard of what perfection might actually look like. Let's fall forward together in the name of Jesus. Amen? All right. So that's the Father Day encouragement. Now we're going to move on. Give your money, sucker. All right. No, I'm kidding. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. And many people think, oh, this is a good talk just on giving. Well, fortunate and unfortunate for you, it's actually much more than that. Right, um, and I was talking to Stephanie, and I, yesterday we were sitting down and enjoying some coffee outside. It was pre-100s um, in the morning in the shade, so it was like 87. I only had small beads of sweat forming on my forehead. Um, but we were talking about, and she was like, well, so what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, I still have some final touches, and started walking through it. And I said, I've never met many Christians that are like, man, I am greedy. I am so greedy. Like, I've met Christians who are greedy, Object, object, like objectively greedy, but I, I hear a lot of people talk about how generous they've been or what generosity they've done, um, and I think kind of in um, generosity for the sake of boasting of generosity is really hypocrisy because you're acting, okay? And so we're going to unpack that today because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapter 5 is talking more on reconciliation between the head and the heart for what the law's application actually means, the law of the Old Testament, how it is actually meant to be applied in our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and then how it's going to be lived out in the context of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so as he's unpacking these realities of what it looks like to live as God's people, he's now turning a corner, and obviously when Jesus was teaching us, he wasn't like, now chapter 6, guys. No, but as we break it out in chapter 6, we do see a transition of how is this faith expressed through religious, meaning the, the posture of worship as a lifestyle, as it works itself out, in the expression of what was given as basic understanding of common religious practice, both in Judaism and in other faiths, of giving, of prayer, and of fasting. 
right? And so my main point for today is actually nothing to do with your pocketbook, but it should be affected. But it's this. Our greatest reward is actually found in and through the glory of God, not the pleasure of man. The greatest reward is found in and through the glory of God and not the pleasure of man. I don't know about you, but when church people talk about the glory of God, glory of God, it sounds so obscure and far and, you know, like, oh, just this, you're grasping at, at just mist as it's vaporizing in front of you. Um, I, I went and uh, did what any smart person would do. I looked it up, and it's basically all of who God is being revealed and applied in and through God's people is who God is and therefore is his glory. So when we're walking in sync with the Father and and connected with the Father, we are glorifying God because we are showing worth and value for who he is and trust. Obedience is typically founded not out of a desire to not get in trouble, but in the foundation of trust for the fact that this relationship is actually better than all others. And so in the context of the relationship that we've been given through God the Father, in and through his son Jesus Christ, helped by the Spirit, guided by his word, we're then able to live a life expressed and uniquely other than the world around us. But our idea of rewards are different. And so Matthew in Chapter 6, verse 1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so this is prefacing not just this immediate next passage, but this upcoming teaching throughout this. Be careful of doing this. Because the real issue here isn't giving. The real issue here isn't prayer. The real issue here isn't fasting. Last time I checked, God is sustainable and ongoing and eternal and worth all of our attention, affection, and allegiance, and his glory does not get muted by the less we believe, and so God's not needing us to hold him up through our giving, prayer, and fasting. He's not needing that type of behavior to maintain it. What he is longing for is for us to enjoy what we've been permitted to have through a relationship with him, which is all of them. Okay, and so as we're able to pursue all of him and then find pleasure there, that's where talk about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you and forgiving those who harm, all those different pieces, those are steps towards this. But as we live it out now, and mindful of his context of who he's talking to, of people who were very much in religious culture. They understood how the Romans handled things. They understood how the Jewish people handled things, and these these kind of outlier people, some religious leaders were there, but some of these other quote-unquote sinners, worse-off people, were there watching. They knew the context in which he speaks. When I ask people, hey, do you have a spiritual background, and I'm aware either they do not or they're not of the Christian faith, typically what they'll first try to defend themselves, especially if they figure out I'm a leader in a church, is, but I'm a good person. Okay, fair enough. But the question is, on the argument of, I'm a good person, is how good then do you think you should be in order to be right with God? Well, I'm not an axe murderer. Good for you. Still going to take a step away because that's the first place we went. 
Well, I'm not as bad as that guy, everything else. If the comparison is for other people on the planet, most of us, by and large, are good people. But that's never been the standard God has held. God's standard has been himself and his righteousness, which all of us then are going to be left wanting and therefore needy. And so when we see the great equalizer of who we are compared to who God is, some of us may have better discipline, some of us may have richer relationship, but the deeper relationship shouldn't put us on a pedestal to see how rotten everyone else is. It should bring a humility that, hey, if it wasn't for God's grace, I would be that way or much worse. Amen. And so it's a, it's a maturing aspect. So the real issue is the pursuit of the glory of God and practicing your righteousness through prayer and giving and fasting. The question really boils down to is who's the actual audience? Who are we doing these things for? Well, if you've been around the faith for a while, guess who you're going to say? Well, it's all for God. Maybe. But it's also for yourself. And it's also often for the approval and the passing of other people. It's interesting to me how we find ourselves more afraid of the pleasure of other people and accountability to other people than we actually are of God. And so we put on this masquerade, we downplay our sin, we elevate the good things we did this last week, and we miss the whole opportunity that, hey, we ought to be journeying with fellow sojourners who may not have fallen down and scraped the same body part, metaphorically, that week, but we're all stumbling and falling forward by the grace of God. But we're more inclined to lie to each other and, and then believe like, oh, God's good. When in reality, we were created for an audience of one. We sinned against that audience and were separated from that audience of one and therefore turned to other less satisfying, less fulfilling audiences. The mirror and other people. Through Christ Jesus, we've been rescued out of that prison of self-adulation and other approval back to right union with the audience of one. And good news is the ultimate pleasure or overall pleasure in us remains solely because Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us, when we come forward with our brokenness, our failures, our sin, it's not coming forward to see what type of punishment we get, but for the reward of understanding the grace of God through the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, informed by the Word of God, affirmed by the people of God for the glory of God. And we can be easily deceived. I will say this, if the extent of your godliness has been viewed by others around you, or the extent of your godliness is posted online, then you might be a hypocrite. So why do we focus so much on pleasing people? I'm a recovering people pleaser. I fail sometimes. I want you all to like me. I don't like when I have to preach hard things and, and you guys are kind of giving me the look of like, good job. Nice sermon. That look, it's like, I get it. You stop liking my posts online, it just goes down the tubes quick. 
I have some friends I can tell when I'm in heart zone on social, I'm in a good place, turns the thumbs up, they're just obligated. But this people-pleasing stuff is like a real addiction, right? Well, why? Because it's immediate. It's immediate feedback, right? It impacts our day-to-day if it's in, in the home. It feels good to be praised and appreciated. And guess what? All of these things are meant to be applied towards the Lord and enjoyed as an extra blessing through relationship with other people. But ultimately, when we forfeit that from the Lord and seek it from other people, we're never satisfied. I don't know a lot about panda bears, but apparently they eat a lot of bamboo. I don't have tonnage weight. Some of you researchers can look it up and then probably send me an email. I'll know that you're mad at me or don't like my sermon. If that's all you send me is, well, actually, panda bears don't eat as much as they used to. They're on a keto diet. Whatever, fish, I don't know. But the reason being is it's not that satiating. It, it just, it's never enough. And so the approval of people, it's, it's quick. People can love my sermon this week, but then next Sunday, they can forget it or not like next Sunday's. And that's exhausting to live in that world of which I have been an addict in. But what is the reward we're actually after? We're after the reward of being seen. We want to be seen. We want to be found. We're, our souls are longing for that. Abigail, my now almost 10-year-old, and I like to play hide-and-seek. I don't know how she finds new hiding spots in our 2,800-square-foot house, but she's able to find new ones where I'm walking around like an idiot. Before, when she was younger, a few years ago, it would be like, okay, she goes from the bathroom over to her bedroom, over to our room. Like, I knew where she was going. I knew from where she told me to to count to where she's going to go, but still she didn't like not being found if I was taking too slow. She started going, caw-caw, woo-hoo, whoop-whoop. You know, whatever, whatever your noise, and she would start chirping and burping or whatever she had to do. She wasn't burping. She's ladylike. But she wanted to be found. The fun was in being found, and now she's nearly 10. She's more of a tyrannical leader where it's like, ooh, where can I hide that? He's too old to bend down and find me. <laughs> and then she started playing this game where now she moves like a ninja, and I said, no, I'm not playing anymore if you start this moving stuff. Like, it shouldn't take me 35 minutes to find you in this house, right? You shouldn't be able to watch a whole episode of something before I find you. I feel like this game's turned to something else. But we want to be seen. We want to be found. We like to experience praise. We want to have and know that we are approved of. We want acceptance, and we want to feel connected. All those things we were created to long for, The challenge is, is when we are unable or unwilling to find that connection with the Lord and understand how valuable that actually is and understand how meaningful it actually is and understanding how satisfying it actually is, we settle for far less. And so as Jesus moves into the giving portion, it has to be in view of being near with the Lord and walking with the Lord, the, the point of religious practice, even in the Old Covenant, was to give pathways and rails to reunite and reconnect with the Lord when his people stray. And to be reminded of his continual, ongoing, tangible faithfulness 
even when his people were unfaithful. That's why calculating and tracking gratitude is important, especially for those of us who are prone towards a little melancholy to recharge our batteries. We like to see how things aren't that good and how they could still be better. And golly, yeah, that was nice, but if this was happening, it would be even better. And then we start placing that on our spouse and on our kids and maybe parents and friends. And then all these unrealized, unrealistic expectations become relational Harm, harming rather than relationship building. Why? Because a dissatisfaction is projection of our own reality that none of us are ever going to be perfect. But we, instead of pursuing our perfection in Christ through relating with the Lord and walking in what he's laid out for us, we're trying to find it in other people. So he goes on and says, thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So notice something. It's not if you happen to give. It says when. When giving... It presumes it. So, people of God, when you give, not if you give, when, when giving to the needy, who's needy? All of us, this gathering on Sunday morning, needy people. Because we like to put needy on people lesser than us, right, in different situations than us. And then we started, like, those of us, like, when I didn't have any money, I just gave it away. Oh, yeah, you want two bucks? He's probably going to buy drugs. Well, I don't know. But now I'm like, well, what would be the ROI, return on investment of giving this gentleman $3? And what would be the global harm if he actually utilized drugs or threw his can on the ground and not in a recycling bin? I'm not saying being unwise with your giving. I'm just saying in our own self-righteousness, I think we at times go too far. If you're concerned about how someone's going to spend the actual cash, pay the bill for them. Go to HEB with them. Buy them groceries. No, you may not have a 24-pack. Sorry. You just told me you're a struggling alcoholic. You can have food. Right? Okay, fine. You, you When giving to the need, when Tithing at church, when giving to the church, when giving to ministries, when doing these things. It's not like, look at me, I'm awesome. Now, some might say, well, did they really use trumpets? This idea of giving was almsgiving, which is basically a deed of mercy or a deed of pity, taking care of those who could not really care for themselves. It was a a deed of mercy. And and the sound of the trumpets here, I always found this interesting, It could be a procession to the temple. There were times where the temple would call people, call God's people to the temple to share a need. And so there may be a procession going ahead. Other people said that um, historically there were shapes like trumpets, uh, like a horn that you would pour your gifts into. Um, And I heard a guy going in depth on that. And I imagine one of those Coinstar machines at the grocery store, you know what I'm talking about, when you have that ridiculously huge bucket of change that you think, like as a kid, came from nowhere, but it was really just money being just torn apart by inflation that's set in your closet, that was your money or dad's money that kind of grew, and then you're sitting, and I always imagine that, that person who brings that obnoxiously large jar or bag or barrel and starts pouring that change in there, 
and everybody's looking at like what is happening, right? Can you imagine that? You come to church and someone's like, oh, my cash doesn't fit in this basket. Do you have a larger one? Or walking in with one of those big checks, you know? I'm not talking about sponsoring events. In the United States, you get tax write-offs as your company sponsors something, but if the only giving you do is that scene in public, then, then you're really marketing. You're not really giving, right? Which is great, and it helps as someone who's run a nonprofit and someone who's led not for profits. That's a beautiful gift and benefit, but if that's the limitation of your generosity, that's a danger of being a hypocrite. So John Stott clarifies this whole trumpet thing so we don't get caught. Some people are going to be like, I, I just can't, can't listen to the rest of this until I understand the trumpet. Here's what he says. Whether Pharisees sometimes did this literally or whether Jesus was painting an amazing caricature does not really matter. In either case, he was rebuking our childish anxiety to be highly esteemed by men. Hypocrites, literally translated actors, masked ones, theater-type folks, lends itself to inconsistency and confusion. And what you'll see happen is if you start really trying to follow the Lord, people will point out your hypocrisy. And the, the best thing to do early on is to own it, because that is true. Even me as a pastor, it's like I don't come here on stage and like this week I struggle with this, 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 this. Man, we got in a fight about this. And then go ask Steph. She probably saw some stuff that she was merciful not to bring to my attention because I was overwhelmed by my current failures that I was aware of. Obviously, there's context in what's appropriate and not, but I'm coming to you as a fellow sinner in need of grace who's been made a saint who still struggles with sin. Right to, to wear any other mask. Unfortunately, I believe one of the reasons I have a decent relationship, I would say a good relationship with my children, is I'm just as much this way here as I am at home. I just don't enunciate as well at home. I'm actually hard to understand at times. I think, like, I'm, I must be a mumbler. It's time to get ready for bed. Are you ready for bed? Oh, I didn't hear you. Is that what you said? It is time to get ready. Right, I don't know. But also be quick to own your hypocrisy. Man, I see that's pretty inconsistent. I see the way I treat these ungrateful employees one way and tolerate so much and am so hard on my own kids. Maybe I'm transferring my frustration with my employees onto my children and I need to rightly apportion that. Well, why are you doing that? Because you want your employees to like you. Ooh, that's tough. I can't tell you how many times the way my brain works and is broken that I've taken a frustration from the last thing I was thinking about and applied it to the nearest thing possible. Hypocrisy. <laughs> I'm not even really mad at that, but that's easier to be mad at because I feel like I can get something from it. Right? It's inconsistency, it's immaturity, and it's humanity. Guess what? You're a hypocrite, and so am I. But I think it's refreshing when people say, you know what, that was not who I wanted to be, and that's not who I'm hoping to become, I'm sorry for that. Let me, can I try that again? Stephanie's very gracious. She said, hey, do you want to try that again? <laughs> I do. <laughs> or not yet. <laughs> we'll call a timeout. Take a tea right here. Call one. There's still three more left in this quarter, so take a little break. But this inconsistency, so how do we reconcile Jesus' earlier teaching to let your light shine if we're not supposed to show anything? 
Have you ever wondered that? Where he says, don't let anyone see. Don't let your right hand know what you're left. But then earlier in the same sermon, he said, but let your shine, light shine before others. In Matthew 5, 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if, if your dad or your mom or your friends or you used to be one way and people say, wow, you're a lot different, you can be like, I've worked real hard. Or you can say, the Lord has been kind. I'd love to share, about that, share more about that with you. So A.B. Bruce, an old theologian, put it this way, show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. So times where we ought to show, where we ought to speak up, where we ought to do that, and we're like, ooh, I don't want to do that, that's when you, in faith, show. And when tempted to show, say, look how much I gave, look at my metaphorical big check, that's when you hide. There's time to talk about money and giving. I have a few friends, we talk about business and money and giving and because a love of money is a root, not the only, but a root to all sorts of evil. And so you want to have accountability around money and giving and things like that. Because money is not all, but it can become all-consuming. And so I, I think it's okay to talk to certain people about, yeah, we've given this, we're doing this, here's our goal this year, etc., to check your heart. And I think sometimes it's as you're discipling or mentoring someone in the faith saying, you know, we, we started giving there. I'll tell you about my giving back when I was 22 years old because you're not going to think I'm that awesome. I signed on my first full-time youth pastor gig. It's making a little over 20 grand a year, I know. And I'm sitting down with the church accountant, an older retired accountant, and he's like, hey, uh, so how much are you going to plan on giving? And I'm like, I don't know, what do you... I'm kind of rich now. What do you think I should give? He said, why don't you start with 10% off your gross earnings? 200 whole U.S. dollars? He said, son, do you hope one day to make more? I said, yeah. And he said, you might as well learn how to do this now before it really hurts. And very quickly, that pain turned to pleasure. And I've yet, we have yet to been able to get outgive God. Haven't been able to. There's wisdom applied. There's things that go on. I'm not saying this isn't a shakedown. I am not after your money. The church is not after your money. People are like, the church only talks about money. I don't know if you realize this. It costs money to do church. Not sure if you realize that. You notice the climate is not melting your face off in here right now? Don't know if you know this. Costs for doing that are going up along with many, many other things. Money we send over as a church to support Hamaray and plant these churches in Kenya. Burnham Next, Foundations Kenya, all these different things that we are participating in, church planting movements. It requires resources, but the point isn't, hey, we want your wallet. No, 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 we want your heart. And what Jesus teaches, when your heart is there, the almsgiving, the giving to the needy is not something that that will always hurt, but become something like I've heard happens when you work out consistently. <laughs> that you start needing it. I'm, I'm three weeks in, and I'm more in the I don't feel like dying mode of, and grateful for that. But uh, you get to that point where it's just like, oh, what an opportunity, what a grace that we're able to be able to be generous and not to show it off. There's times to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
There's times to give very quietly and secretly where no one ever knows where it came from, right? The, the whole point isn't whether right, wrong, right hand, left hand. Jesus is saying like, hey, you're missing the point. Because guess what? If you harp on how much you gave last year, that can start producing a pride in us and rob us of the joy and the reward of the Lord. Our reflection should be on the generosity of the Lord towards us through Christ, Amen. not on our acts of generosity last year. And if you want to try to outgive God and you're able to do so, I would love to hear about it. I've yet to hear a story to that end. And I'm not saying God's a slot machine that guarantees payout. I'm saying he's a God who is faithful, who doesn't provide 10% for you to give. He provides you 100% of all you have. He's our provider. Let's enjoy that. James gives this understanding of this expression of our faith and religion. He says in James 1.27, religion that is pure, and really that the, the word is, it, it translates to, to this ongoing act of worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So basically the needy helping those who cannot help themselves or ever pay you back, they're not gonna post about you on social, they're not gonna send you a plaque to be hung, they are able to, just. there's nothing to bring back to the table. Why is that important for us? Because is that not what the Lord himself has done for us? When we had nothing to give, nothing worthwhile, he gave us value and worth. He took enemies and adopted us as sons and daughters and made us new in Christ. The challenge is, though, that our desire and our immaturity often lends us to that we are as faith, only as faithful as God's last faithfulness to us. Well, God hasn't done much for me lately, and so I'm going to pursue I'm, not, I'm gonna go a different way. He, what has he done? He has caused this, allowed this, brought this, whatever. That's fine. But it reminds me of my daughters when they were little. Well, she doesn't share with me. Well, she doesn't let me do that. Well, you haven't let, you let her, but you don't let. That's fine, but friends, that's childish. And it's time to be big boys and big girls. As we mature in our faith, it's time to grow up. James goes on to say in James 2, 14 through 18, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. We say we believe, great. Stop proving it to each other. You can be a follower of Jesus and I might not ever believe you. That makes no difference before God. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know Jesus and you act like a hellion, someone who doesn't know God, there might be something off with your heart. But you're, you're not out to prove or to be congratulated or to be noticed or be lifted up. And for my personality, that's tough. To do things in, in quiet, to do things not to be seen and not to be heard by other people, but trusting that the Lord sees, that the Lord knows, 
that the Lord loves, that the Lord gives, that the Lord frees, that the Lord forgives. So that when someone is in need, we don't ask the question, how can we connect them? I do have a question, church. How is it that there's a lot of churches and a lot of people claiming to be Christian in Brenham and there are people who go hungry? Faith Mission is a great ministry here in town. I know there's other ministries that help out, but they can only help so many people. What are we believers doing to help those in need? And this isn't a corrective just to our congregation, saying the church. I mean, we're in Texas. We're in the Bible buckle of the Bible belt. How is anyone hungry? How is anyone not heard the gospel of Christ? How is anyone not receiving the education or health care they need? How is that happening And I'm talking to myself too. How does that, how is that okay? Because as we understand the implication and application of God's gospel of his son Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, that the power of the resurrection, the power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power granted to every person who calls on the name of Christ. And in that power, we're then able to begin living differently, to suffer through the withdrawals of the pleasure of other people and to begin to lean into in faith and in hope the pleasure of God found in Christ in us that we get the benefit of more of God as we lean into God. The good news for us is that we are finite beings and our God is infinite. There is always more of God that we can have. So when we talk about giving, Paul gives this instruction, 2 Corinthians, church in Corinth, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I would say before a cheerful giver, God loves an honest giver. God, this hurts. God, I'm afraid. God, whatever. God, wow, that's a lot. Whatever. He loves an honest one because there's cheer on the other end, friend. There's life on the other end. The maturing of realizing like, oh, it's tough. But why? A cheerful giver. Why? And here's the promise, verse 4. And your father who sees in secret, will reward you. Guess what our mind tends to go to right away? More stuff, more land. When really the gift is more God. The reward is the union with Christ and the completion of the act itself of doing, being like Christ in our generosity, being like Christ and helping those that we don't like or agree with, Blessing our enemies, helping those who would never help us back, showing compassion on those who may not even deserve mercy, and doing ministry in prisons. Right? Because when we come to understand that gratitude is actually greater than obligation, that when we are motivated by gratitude and the depth of understanding what God has accomplished, there's actually joy on the other end. Why? Because what is the reward? God himself. And, and God as a reward and, and faith in God's generosity 
towards us in Jesus Christ helps us to realize the fact, if you are in Christ, know these truths. You are known by God, good, bad, and otherwise. You're known by God. He knows everything. Number two, you're loved perfectly by God, even though you're known by God. He chooses proactively to love you in consequential ways. Number three, you are forgiven by God, not because you got yourself right, but because God made you right through the work of Jesus Christ. And if you're not right with God, you are known, you are loved, you can be forgiven because of God's work through his son Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the hope we have in his future return to continue to make all things new. And lastly, Know this, not only are we known, and we're not tolerated, we're loved. Not only are we loved, but we are forgiven. And not only are we forgiven, we're actually accepted by God. It's not that we accept God, but that God, through Christ, makes us acceptable. So you're forgiven, you're released from your sin because it's been paid for. You're loved regardless of how or who you are. You are known completely, and you are accepted by God as sons and as daughters. As we meditate on that and having God and understanding the implications of that, we understand, well, then what is this reward of having God? It's fruit. Now, let me break this down for you. I spend time coaching high-capacity leaders, people way smarter than me. Um, I'm sitting there, I just ask dodo questions and then, you know, point my finger and say stuff. You know, I, I, in pastoral care, I get to work with all sorts of brilliant people and, and help them navigate through things. But one of the things that I hear often, especially from men in our middle age, and even older, especially if they're struggling, two things they want. They want peace. I just want some peace. And they want joy. Well, guess what? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. When we have more of God, we become more like God, and we experience joy that surpasses happiness, happiness being circumstantial, joy being lasting and eternal, doesn't mean we don't face hard things, but the way we experience them mature and become different. We have peace in a tumultuous world. They can kill your body. Why would you fear those who can kill your body but not destroy your soul in hell? Fear the one who can do both. That's the good news. That's the impetus towards this giving and generosity. That's the antidote to greed and fear and turmoil is Christ being realized. And as we grow, notice the fruit is something having been implanted in us and been cultivated with us and born as a result of our nearness to the Lord. That's the reward. It doesn't mean we don't face fear, but it means we have lasting peace. It doesn't mean that we don't go through hard seasons and aren't sad, but we still have a lingering joy that doesn't seem to be able to fully go away. Now, that's not to impose guilt on anybody going through clinical depression, struggling from really hard things. That's why we have each other in community that, hey, the joy surrounding us can hold us up. We forget. That's why we gather. We evangelize. The greatest gift I can give to you is not money. It's the gospel. But let me tell you, if, you're, if you don't have no place to live, no food to eat, 
nothing non-alcoholic to drink that's clean, then you might need those pieces first. You might need to be shown the gospel before you give the gospel. My friends that started a ministry in Amarillo called City Church Amarillo, they go and feed thousands of of meals throughout the summer to children who are in school lunches, uh, whose parents have to work and they don't have food during the week. Um, They pack a bunch of lunches and carry them to the kids during the week. Um, And what they say is help without hope is actually no help at all. We have a message to give that isn't ours that we created, but ours to share. We show it through our generosity and our giving so that when we open our mouth, our words, our descriptor, our explainer of that mercy being shown. We're not doing it to earn anything. We're doing it because we've been given it all. And many believers are like adults riding a bike with training wheels. Haven't really grown up. And if you want something funny to look at, Go to images.google.com later today and look at adult on training wheels. And I almost posted one up here because they're so hilarious, but some might not find that humorous in the context of church. And so, and, uh, but it's hilarious. And I remember when I was a kid and I had training wheels and like one started getting real loose, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a boss. You know, I could ride my bike real well, that clanky clank. And my dad finally was like, I'm taking those things off. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Look, it's time to roll on two wheels, brothers and sisters. It's time to roll on two wheels. Because guess what? The Father's right behind you. He will catch you when you fall. Our greatest reward is found in and through the glory of God and not the pleasure of man.